So if you are of a certain generation or depending on your church background, you may be familiar with a song that was sometimes sung in church, Father Abraham. It's a simple song, Father Abraham. And some of you are already humming it in your head, right? And many sons, many sons said, Father Abraham, I am one of them and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. And then you go through all these motions. Now, I have several theories on this song. One is that it was a song written primarily to try and wear kids out before the lesson happened. <laughs> Do the right hand, the left hand, right foot, left foot, shake it all around. Try, like the idea was like, get all the wiggles out of the kids so you can teach them a Bible story. But there's also a little bit of truth in this song about Father Abraham. We're talking about Abraham because that was, as you noticed, a central figure in the passage that we read today. So we're in a study on the book of Romans, but we're talking a lot about Abraham. So I want to give a quick review if you don't remember or you're not familiar with the story of Abraham in the Bible. So if we go way back to the first pages of the Bible, we have God creating the world, and in the world he puts a man and a woman, and he calls them to be his vice regents, to reign and to rule with him. But they choose their own way. They choose something else. Rather than God's glory, they choose their own. They exchange the glory of God for something else. And so they set that aside, and it sets the world into a tailspin. And God develops a plan to change the world, to reconcile the world to himself, to bring about peace and justice, to make all things right again. And he does it through a family through a people. And he begins with a man named Abraham. And the, the promises begin there. And so in Genesis chapter 12, this first book of the Bible, we begin to read a little bit of the story. And so it's Genesis 12, beginning at verse 1, it says, The Lord said to Abram, so at this time, at this time his name is Abram, not Abraham. God changes his name later. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a nation, a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And so God comes to Abraham, or to Abram at this time, and he's painting for him a picture of the fact that through Abram and through his descendants, he's going to change the world. God is going to bring his blessing, he's going to bring his restoration, he's going to bring his justice, his righteousness through Abram and his descendants. He's going to make him into a great nation. At this point, Abram's got no kids. So there's this question of, well, how do you make a great nation? How do you make a great family when you got nothing at this point? And as we read through, if we were to read the rest of those stories following this passage in Genesis, we might start to wonder if Abraham's really a good choice because he makes some poor decisions along the way, but doesn't always listen to God. And then in Genesis 15, so a few chapters later, it comes back and he's still wondering because Abraham's wondering, he's like, wait a minute, time's going by and I still don't have any kids, but God made this promise that I was going to be a great nation. And so God comes to him and he says this to Abraham. He says, he takes him outside, he says, look at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, this is God speaking to Abraham, so shall your offspring be. And then it says, Abraham believed the Lord, and he, that is God, credited to him, Abram, as righteousness. So we see that key phrase that we just heard Paul use in the letter to the Romans, that he believed and he credited to him as righteousness. Righteousness. 
And then the rest of Genesis 15, there's this whole ceremony. God makes a covenant or a promise with him. And then there's yet another covenant in Genesis 17 where God makes the covenant of, of circumcision. And by this point, Abe is 90 years old and still no kids. But there's this mark, this continuation of the promise. And eventually, Abraham does have a child. And then the nation grows and the promise continues on through the stories of the Bible, through the stories of like Moses and the Exodus, through David, all these people where God is creating a people. And through this people, he's going to bring his justice and his righteousness along the way. But the problem is the people along the way stumble and fall. And eventually God sends Jesus. And King Jesus shows again what the kingdom of God looks like. And he speaks of a people, a kingdom, and they will be the ones through whom he will do. And so later, Jesus' followers pick up on this idea that what Jesus did was restore this thing. And so, 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. And so there's this picture of what God is doing. And so we have to imagine this big picture of God is using people and a particular chosen people to bring about his goals in the world to make all things right. And the people are stumbling and falling along the way. And eventually God sends Jesus and Jesus reconstitutes this people of God and calls them to be his people. And Paul, an earlier followed Jesus, he begins to create churches, these groups of people. And he says, you are the new people of God, and this is how God is going to bring about the change in the world. The problem was, as these churches came together, they were created out of all different kinds of people. There were slaves and there were frees. There were Jews and Gentile, male and female, barbarians and Scythian, people from all different backgrounds. And 2,000 years ago isn't much different than today. You bring people together from all different backgrounds, all different locations, all different things, and you put them all in the same room together. And what happens? People disagree about things. People aren't sure about things. They're not sure about, well, wait a minute. You have a different heritage. And so you can imagine an early church sitting around where there's a men and women sitting at the same table, something maybe the culture didn't do. You can imagine a table of people in a church where there's a slave and maybe the former slave owner there. Were there people from different socioeconomic backgrounds who didn't hang around with one another? And they're all sitting together and they're struggling. Not unlike when we put a church together in 2022. And we have people from different backgrounds. Maybe people raised in different churches. Maybe people who were never in church at all. Maybe people who came from different places and different ways and looking at things. And they all saw different things. And sometimes they don't get along so well. And so this was what was true in Rome. This church that Paul is writing to. And so we're reading the letter to the Romans. And Paul is writing this letter to the Romans, trying to help them to say, we need to be united and not divided. That we need to do this. And so he's wanting to unite them under King Jesus. And he begins, first of all, by laying out a case. And so we're, not, we're going to quickly run through the first few chapters of Romans. Paul's basic case is, that everyone's united under one thing, and one thing they're united under is sin. In other words, everybody misses the mark. 
Everybody falls short. Everybody chooses their own way over God. And so he's doing this and he's saying, it's not just the Jews. It's not just the Gentiles. It's not one group over the other. Nobody's superior. Nobody has a head up and say, we're better. But then everyone's failed in this vocation, this calling of God. But then he says, there's something else that you're united. There's one plan for God to save everybody. And so in Romans 3.22, he says, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. In other words, there's only one way for people to be saved, and that's through faith in Jesus. So he says, first of all, we're united in sin, but we're also united in there's one way to be saved. And so that's where this story of Abraham comes in. And granted, it's a long and complicated story. As you read, heard that passage there, there's 25 verses. There's a lot that goes on, lots packed in there. We're not going to be able to take apart everything. Certainly far more complicated than Father Abraham had many sons. But I want us to look at what he's doing. And basically, he's saying that God's plan all along was justification by faith. And justification means this declaration and a deliverance. It's God pronouncing people innocent, but it's also making them right. It's forgiveness and restoration. And so we're going to look at this story as Paul uses Abraham as an example, kind of in three parts. And what they mean, and then maybe what they mean for us. So he starts off, he says, what do we say about Abraham? Because people knew who Abraham was. They knew the story of Abraham. They knew Abraham as an example, as a, a model to follow. And the question asked in kind of those first eight verses is, was Abraham justified by works? In other words, did God make him righteous by the things that he did? And Paul makes it clear. What does Scripture say? So he goes back to the passage we read from Genesis 15. Well, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And so there's this language of reckoning or crediting that's used a lot in Romans 4 here. The point is, it comes from God. And kind of the language he uses, it's not work. So if you have a job and you go to work, what do you expect to get every two weeks or once a month or every week? A paycheck, right? I mean, if you get a paycheck, I mean, you say, well, I've earned that. I've deserved that. And so it's the same way you don't say like, wow, look at this amazing gift my employer gave me. He put money in my bank account. No, it's something you worked for. But what he's saying is now, he says, but the one who does not work, their faith is credited as righteousness. In other words, he's making the point, but if you do no work and you get something, it's not a, something you're owed. Your wages aren't a gift. But when you get something you're not owed, it is a gift. And so that's what Paul is getting at here. He says, now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. In other words, you go to work, you expect, I mean, you get pretty upset if you went to work and you didn't get a paycheck. Because it's an obligation. You don't think of it as a gift. You don't think, wow, my employer is so nice. He gave me a gift today. But he says, however, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. So his point is, kind of using this economic picture, that when God gives righteousness, when he justifies Abraham, it's not something that he was owed. It's not as if Abraham did something and deserved it, but instead it was given as a gift. In fact, Paul says, if you heard that in verse 3, who justifies the ungodly? It was a gift to the ungodly. A gift to Abraham and to us. He says, if you don't work, all you can get is a gift. 
It's not a reward. And then he goes on and he uses that picture of forgiveness. He said, again, the same thing is that God gives that as a gift. His point is this idea of justification, this big fancy word, is a free gift that's given to the ungodly and received in faith, which is what we see in Abraham. He didn't work for it, but instead he believed, he trusted. But then the question comes up for these people, so, well, especially remember this church, early church probably involved Jewish people and, and Gentiles. And so the Jewish people were these descendants of Abraham, and they clung to these pictures of the way God had done. And so one of the key markers, the thing that set them apart was this mark of circumcision. And so they said, well, well, wait, wait a minute. God gave his promises and part of that promise involved the mark of circumcision. So shouldn't we also be keeping that? And Paul kind of takes them through the story in verses 9 through 15 and says, well, let's go back to our Bibles. And he says, which came first, Genesis 15 or Genesis 17? Anyone want to take a guess? Genesis 15, right? Well, Genesis 15 says Abraham believed and God credited to him as righteousness. God doesn't give the gift or the promise, the covenant of circumcision until Genesis 17. So what Paul argues here is he says, well, circumcision wasn't required for this gift. They were justified by faith before circumcision. So in other words, the difference between Jews and Gentiles isn't basic to the story. So it's not a matter of circumcision or uncircumcision, it's a matter of faith. To be a child of Abraham is about belief. And so now he's kind of bringing along. So first we've laid out the case, Abraham didn't work for it. He was justified by faith. That it was a gift, a grace from God, and it didn't have anything to do with circumcision. In fact, what he says, he says, so there was that complicated, so he's the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised, and he is also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but also follow in the footsteps of the faith. So in other words, circumcision, uncircumcision, doesn't matter. What matters? Believing or faith. And so now he's starting to bring it home. He's starting to bring it home, and he gets to this point again that it's a gift. So in 4.16, he says, therefore, the promise comes by faith. So that it may be by grace or by a gift, it may be guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are above the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. Again, notice that language, he's the father of us all. Again, go back to our song, Father Abraham. And so he's the father of us all. All those who share the faith, or as John Barclay says it, he says, to belong to this family is to trust in the incongruous, in other words, it doesn't match up. The incongruous gift and power of God. So Paul's using this argument. saying, this is what faith looks like. And so he's going to start now to see, okay, I get Abraham was justified by faith. Well, let me say, well, what does faith look like? And so he goes on to say it. He says to Abraham in um, Romans 4, 17, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. And so he's saying, here's, what did, what did Abraham trust? He trusted God. And what could God do? He could bring life to the dead and bring into being things that were not. So now let's go back to our story. 
So remember, God promised Abraham that he would make him into a great nation, that there would be this countless descendants, as many as what? The stars in the sky. When God makes this promise to Abraham, Abraham is 90 years old. And his wife Sarah is in that same age range. What do you think the chances of a 90-year-old having a child are? None. None, really. I mean, she, they've, and they've been trying all... It's not as if they all of a sudden got married at 90 and said, let's have kids. They've been married for a long time and been able to have kids. And so for the ancient Israelite, this was in some sense a mark of death, that she was barren, that Abraham couldn't produce a child. Sarah couldn't produce children. They were barren, and so there was a sense of they were dead because their name would not be carried on. And so when God comes and says to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and I will give you descendants, and Abraham believes him, what is Abraham believing? Abraham is believing that God can raise the dead, that God can bring something where there was nothing. They needed resurrection. Did they believe that God could do what he said? And this is where Paul picks up the argument and goes back to Jesus. Then in 424, but also for us, no longer talking to Abraham, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised our Lord, Jesus our Lord, from the dead. And so the point is, just as Abraham believed God could give him a son, that he could bring life where there was none, so we're called to believe. We're called to believe in Jesus' death or re resurrection to bring forgiveness and liberation from sin. So he says in 425, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. So to be justified is to receive the promise of life. That God turns sinners like Abe and us into new people. That he brings life where there was death when we put our faith and absolute trust in him. So there's the story of Abraham. How God's laying it out in the argument because he's kind of said, he's like, oh, we're all justified by faith. And he says, I'm going to use Abraham as an example of it. Abraham believed and it was given to him as a gift. It was credited to him as righteousness. He didn't work for it. It didn't matter if he was circumcised or uncircumcised. And what was Abraham's belief? An absolute trust in God that God could do what he said and most importantly, that God could raise the dead, that God could bring life where there was no life, that God could make things where there was nothing. And so that's what he's speaking to us. He's saying, if you want to receive that, that's what faith looks like, is to put an absolute trust in God. To not trust in anything you do, to not look at yourself and say, well, but I really do a pretty good job. I just need God to help me the last little bit. Or I think I can handle it on my own. But it's to say, no, it's an absolute trust in God. And trust in God, what? That God can raise the dead, that God can do where there was no, that God can bring things into being that were not. That's the faith. This faith is this absolute to look and say, nothing else makes sense. There are no other solutions. It was Abraham and Sarah at the age of 90, and God saying, you're going to be a father of a great nation. And Abraham's looking and is like, there are no kids in this house. How am I going to be the father of a nation? I don't even have one. But he believed. And he invites us to the same thing where he says to us, he says, but that what he calls us to do is not to believe that he can raise the dead and make children, but that he can make us into children of God. 
and that he raised Jesus from the dead, and in the same way, he can raise us from the dead. It's to put our trust in God and say, I can't trust in anything else. I can't trust in my own good works. I can't trust in my church background. I can't trust in my culture. I can't trust in any of those things. But the only thing that I should put my trust in to make me right with God, to find forgiveness, is in God and Jesus' death and resurrection. That's it. To put absolute faith and trust in Him. And so as we kind of wrap it up, as we think about it, justification this big word, like this big long word that we are, it's an act of grace. It's a gift. It's a gift for all. doesn't matter, circumcised, uncircumcised, whatever. It's a gift for all. And how do we receive it? By unwavering trust in God. And when we do, it's the start of new life. Or as Michael Gorman, the one scholar says, he says, in a word, justification is life. That's what justification is. So we went through this big picture of the story of Abraham and how God, how Paul uses it to make this story, that this is what justification looks like, that it's justification by faith. And justification, again, is this declaration that we are forgiven, but it's also a making us right. It's restoring us to new life. And it comes by faith, not by works, not by working harder. It's a gift from God. And it's a gift from God that's available to all. It doesn't matter your background or whatever it is. And the gift comes as we receive it by faith, which is an absolute trust in God. So I want to think about three ways maybe we could say, okay, how can I move this from some like fancy theology to what happens in the next week or two weeks or month? So I'm going to offer up a couple suggestions, but I also want you to think about, you know, asking God to help you see that. Sometimes when I listen to a sermon or I listen to someone preaching, I want, I, want, I want the person preaching, I want this woman or man who's delivering this word of God to say, okay, now, here, Carl, here's what you do with it. But I realize the preacher, whoever she is, can't tell me everything I'm to do with it. They might offer some suggestions, and I can offer some suggestions but I don't know every one of your life circumstances. I don't know everything. I try and think about those things, and, but I, I don't know all those. But you know who does know everything about you? God. And so what you might want to do is then talk to God this week and say, God, I'm hearing this story of Abraham, but, but I'm not sure what it means for me. I'm not sure what it means to recognize that justification, God making me right, is a gift. I'm not sure what it means that it comes by faith as an absolute trust. But here's three suggestions of maybe it might work. One is that the gospel or this good news defines identity. So Paul breaks people into groups. It's not about circumcised, uncircumcised. Those are not the things that matter. But what ultimately matters is allegiance or faith in King Jesus and not. Those are the two groups of people. And so as we think about it and how I think about it in my life is, that's how I de identify people and not to say us versus them or who's inside and outside, but to say my closeness with people, the greatest bond I have with people is not my cultural background. It's not the fact that other Swedes, it's not the fact that with other white people, it's not with other people who were in the army. It's not all these other things. The thing that bonds me closest to other people and ought to bond me closest to other people is allegiance to Jesus. In other words, I have more in common with an Ethiopian Christian 
than I do with a non-Christian who was a veteran at the same time as I was. Those things, that allegiance ought to bear me a closer relationship than any other. That I ought to identify with the king's citizens over any other. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is our primary identity? And what Paul is getting at part here is like, sometimes we want to use these other markers, these other things about who we are, maybe our denominational background, the church we went to, the color of our skin, the way we dress, our socioeconomic stuff. We want to use all those things as our primary identity markers. And what Paul is getting at is he says, those are a part of who you are, but the most significant marker of who you are is your allegiance to King Jesus. It has to reign and rule over every other one of those. Second way we might think about it is, it's an invitation. It's an invitation to believe and to trust. As we look at our life with God and word seeking, we want to be made right with God. We want to be forgiven. We want to be justified. We want to live with God forever. That there's only one way to do that. It's not by working harder. It's not by being better. It's not by reading your Bible more. It's not by giving to the church more. It's not by serving more. The one way to be justified, to be made right with God is by faith. To trust absolutely in God. And it's hard. I mean, I grew up, and for a long time I didn't realize it, but I was trusting in my ability to be good. I mean, I grew up and I thought, I can, I'm, I'm a good kid. I mean, I didn't do all the things the other kids did in school. I did some of them, but those were little things. But I was, you know, I'm a good kid. You know, my high school class nominated me class Boy Scout, which meant I was like, I was the kid who never got in trouble. I did all the right things. But then I came to that point in life where I said, yeah, I'm pretty good. But there's still those parts of me that aren't. There's still those parts of me where I don't. And the other thing is, I was ultimately trusting in my own ability to do good, and I realized I couldn't do it all the time. And so the invitation from God is to say, put your absolute trust in the one who can bring life. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. And so he's saying, trust in that God. Don't trust in yourself because that's going to fail. Trust and put your faith in Him. The last thing I would say is that as we see this story, it might be tempting to make Abraham into the hero of the story. Like, oh, let's all be like Abraham. Little hint, Abraham's not the hero of this story. Do you know who the hero of the story is? God is. All these times where it says, and it was credited to him, and it was reckoned to him, and it was done as, who was behind the scenes doing all this? God. God was the one who was giving. God who was the one who gave the gifts. God who was the one who justified him. God was the one, God was the one acting behind this and doing all these things. So if nothing else, what we do is we read the scriptures, we always want to look to God as the one who does. The one who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. The one who raised Jesus from the dead. The one who justifies the ungodly. The one who forgives us. The one who blesses us. The one who pours out. We always point to God and say, God is the one who is doing, God is the one who is doing it. And if we read our Bible and we get nothing else and we look to God and say, God is the one who does, then we've had a good time. So I invite you to read the story. 
the story about Abraham, but we're going to go back to the song. The father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So what's the next line? So let's all praise the Lord. See, because while it's a simple kid's song, there's some deep theology there. Because we can all be children of Abraham by faith. And as we recognize that we're children of God justified by faith, the invitation to us, the response then is to give praise to God. Because God is the one who has done it. So let's all praise the Lord. Amen.